So uh, for those of you who weren't there, we just had a great retreat uh, on uh, Whidbey Island, uh, Vision Cast Retreat. It was a lot of fun. And uh, here was our big topic. We, we uh, really uh, sensed a great deal of uh, enthusiasm and energy around the idea of hope and unity and community. It was really a cool thing. And we were teaching on this in the context of what you and I are going through in the culture, which, let's face it, is in unprecedented ways marked by division chaotic frenzy and harsh words and truth wars and social media outbursts and deep polarization and as you know rising physical violence and against the backdrop of all that we said here in the church we come together to live as one and there's so much biblical you know resource to draw on to to be inspired in that way and just one verse uh stands out colossians chapter 3 verse 15 paul says And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you were called to live in peace. So there we were. We were just talking about peacemaking and unity and community. Great stuff, right? So now, with that in mind, welcome back to Church AC3, where we're going to spend the next three weeks learning how to fight. Whoa, holy backlash. Batman. Uh, Have we lost our minds? Uh, Are we schizophrenic? How can we be the same church that broke camp holding hands singing Kumbaya two weeks ago and now we've got this dragon bird on our wall for three weeks? How, how, how How can those things go together? Well, trust me, friend, there is a way that we can be a peace loving church and a fighting church at the same time. Right? Trust me. And that's what these next three weeks are all about. To give us a kind of a theme and a way that we can begin to mesh those uh, two things together, the Apostle Paul will help us. And here's a verse that we can kind of hang our hat on for the next three weeks. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul will say, ours is not a wrestling match against a human opponent. We are wrestling with rulers, authorities, the powers who govern this world of darkness and spiritual forces that control evil in the heavenly world. So there he's trying to put the ideas together. We Christians are fighters, but we don't fight people. It's a different kind of fight. Now, let's be honest. Some of you in this room, uh, your experience with Christians has been kind of the opposite of this verse. I mean, your experience is that Christians are all too eager to fight human opponents. I mean, it just seems to you that Christians have their dukes up all the time. They want to fight the gays, punish them with laws. They want to fight the Muslims. They want to deport the illegal Canadians. They want to, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. They, they, want to, they want to fight the abortion doctors and not spiritually, like really, like just kill some of them and then call it good. Some of you know Christians who are, who are just itching for a fight with North Korea, like really, bring on the war already. Let's nuke them. Some of you kind of know Christians in that way. So if that's your experience, you're a little antsy about a church starting a three-week series on combat. But here's what I'm hoping. I'm just hoping that all of us, no matter where you're at in the spiritual spectrum, if you've been following Jesus for a really long time, we will be able to understand our fight better because of these next three weeks. So to start, we just start where Paul of Tarsus starts, and he starts here. Christians should not be itching to fight human opponents. We should be people of peace. We should be people of reconciliation. We should be people who love our enemies. So you say, okay, got it. 
But if that is so, then why would Paul even bring it up like this? Why would he even tell us that we're in a fight? Why use the militaristic language of this passage, which he unashamedly does? Swords and shields and defense and offense. and It's all hanging on military language. If we're not supposed to engage human opponents in battle, why aren't we then just called to passivity, right? Shouldn't then passiveness be our thing? You know, just, um, you know, that should just be our deal. Why not? Why is Paul going here? Well, Christians are called to fight. But to explain why, we have to back up and explain how Christianity is different from other ways of looking at the world. And everybody has a worldview, by the way. So I don't know if you think you know what your worldview is, but you've got one. Your worldview is just your way of answering the big questions about life. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What's important? What matters? And really, some of us get overwhelmed by this. We say, oh, that's all the isms, right? Like, you know, there's Hinduism and Buddhism and Islamism and, you know, Mormonism and all that stuff. And you get kind of overwhelmed with the options on this whole thing. And we deal with this in investigations, by the way. We'll have our next round of that in October. And trust me, we kind of get to this idea of how does Christianity compare with all the other world religions. But if that overwhelms you, just understand something. Really, when it comes to big worldview options, there's only three. They break down into subcategories, but there's only three. And the three are this. There's atheism, there's pantheism, and there's theism. That's kind of how it all breaks down. So atheism, as you probably would guess, it takes the view that spiritual realities are nothing. They are a no thing. There's nothing to them. There's no reality. So, of course, that means that statements of value, like that is wrong, that is right, that is evil, that is good, are meaningless on atheism. They're utterly meaningless. They are simply statements of opinion. But your opinions, again, on atheism, what are they? Well, your opinions are just the firing of neurons in the brain, which sprang accidentally from a primordial soup of non-living chemicals to help perpetuate genes which will just as meaninglessly disintegrate and decay and go extinct someday i mean it's bleak it's bad but i'm you know i deeply respect consistent atheists who accept the implication of their worldview this is what it means then pantheism is on the other end of the of the religion spectrum right rather than saying that god is nothing over here pantheists say that god is everything in fact, that's the, what the definition of the word means. Pantheism means all Godism. That's what it means. Everything is God in pantheism. So God then is somehow the universe. The universe is God. There's like an equal signs between them. And if the universe would, would just blink out of existence tomorrow, there would be no God because God is the universe. And if God is everything, then that means God is beyond the personal, certainly, and he's beyond distinctions that you make between things in the world. If God is everything, including you and the chair you're sitting in, then everything is the same stuff. Everything is what monos- they, everything is one. Atman is Brahman, is what they would say. So if everything is one, that would include moral distinctions are also one. They're one and the same thing. There really is nothing really different about good and evil. Pantheists would say that the closer you get to the divine point of view, the farther away you get from saying good, evil, black, white distinctions of any kind. So, with that little rundown on atheism and pantheism, here's what you see, right? You see that atheism and pantheism both don't take very seriously the objective reality of right and wrong. Neither one do. Now compare, now compare theism in the middle. Christian theism says God is real, God is personal, God is a creator designer, and God is good. 
Now, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, it means, on one hand, that we believe the, the world, the universe, is not just a random thing that springs out of nothing for no reason and heads back to nothing. No, we believe that God made it, that God invented it. He designed it like a man writes a song. God invented the world. And there's good reasons, I believe, to think this way. I mean, the universe is full of design, complex design, and information. You, you look into the world of science right now, and, and it used to be for the better part of 250 years, everyone thought, well, the base thing in the universe is just matter. That's the base thing. Matter, energy, that's the base thing. And the more complex we find the laws of nature and the finely tuned parameters which make life possible, the more science finds out about that, the more some scientists are saying, information is the prime reality of the universe. Information, which is spiritual. You know, where is the number seven, you know? The, the information is finally what the universe is made of. So design is baked into the show. But on the other end, okay, so that's where Christians just say, well, we believe that there's design and it's real. But on the other hand, Christianity says that the world is also not entirely a reflection of God either. It's God's handiwork, it's been designed, yet... It is separate from him. His handiwork shows some of him, but it's not the same thing as the author himself. Like you'd look at a painting and you'd say, wow, the painter put a lot of himself into that. But the painting is not the painter, right? They're separate. There may be things about the painter that are not uh, the painting that are not the painter. So that's the way Christianity looks at the world. And what that allows the Christian theist to do is to look at the world and say, unlike the atheist, wait a minute. My moral nature is just not random firing of neurons in the brain that are accidental and completely arbitrary. Um, and that's why we can never go back and say, well, you know, because the universe looks so cruel, because it's evil, because the universe is evil, therefore there can be no intelligence or God or goodness behind it. We can never go there. Why not? Because if the universe were evil and entirely cruel and meaningless, you would never know it. Because you're just a part of it. You're just a part of the show. Does a fish complain about being wet? Think about that for a second. No, because that's all it knows. It's just a part of the show. It doesn't walk around saying, man, I'm soaked all the time. Fish don't say that because they're just part of the wet environment. Now, how do you know that the universe is cruel and wicked? How, how do you know that? There has to be an access point for you to make your judgments about the universe for which you can say, this is wrong, this is cruel, this is unjust. The fish has no such reference point for dryness and say, man, it's wet in here. So if it did, you'd know, wouldn't you, that that fish has had revelation from outside the lake and some of the fish you guys have caught have such revelation. Um, so unlike the atheists, we can't go there in that place. Our moral nature is real. It's not just um, random firings of the brain. But the theist also is allowed to look at the world and say, unlike the pantheist, and say, this thing, this thing here in the world is not God. Oh, this over thing over here, this also, this is not God. And why would we say that? Because it's not good. Because it doesn't conform to that revelation of what goodness is all about so we're allowed to say that because god is distinct from and separate from his creation that means that there could be something in creation which god has made which nevertheless is not what god wants it's in god's world 
but it's not what God wants. We're allowed to say that because of the way we look at God separate from his creation. So, do you see how this relates to the idea of fighting? It means that only those who believe in a real, personal, good God can reasonably take a very strong stand, that is to say, fight against that which does not conform to what is good. Only those who believe in the reality of this goodness can take a strong stand against that which doesn't match up with what is good. The atheist can take such stands, and your atheist friend, I'm sure, is a moral person who does, but he does not do so reasonably, I believe. He ought to take everything as is. Moral indignation, pointless. Fighting injustice, futile. You see, consistent atheists are fatalists. You understand that, right? Consistent atheism is fatalistic. That's what it is. So you, you just have to. You have to go there, finally. You have to be determinist if you're an atheist because things are just running by the rules of nature, acting on matter, and they could not be otherwise. Even your free will. Your free will is just an illusion. Your mind reduces down to chemistry in the brain. That's it. It's an illusion that you are free. Even your, person, even your personhood is an illusion. So why fight it? Why fight it? You say, Rick, I don't think you're being free, uh, fair to the atheist this morning. I think I am. Atheist Jerry Coyne, a, a, a pretty prominent atheist spokesperson, was quoted recently, said, the other day when I was thinking about an old girlfriend I had and feeling regrets, and all of a sudden my intellect kicked in. And I said, well, you know, what happened, happened. What, what he means is my worldview presumptions kicked in. There was no choice about the matter. Why should I feel any regret? Why should I wish things had turned out differently? They could not have turned out differently. That is a consistent atheist, my friends. But then as an atheist, why would you get stressed out about Donald Trump? Why would you protest nuclear war? Why would you get involved in politics? Why would you care about social reform at all? Why fight wrong? I'm quoting now, things could not have turned out differently. It's just atoms in motion, baby. That's all there is on atheism. Now, interesting, would Jerry Coyne have said the same thing if he had raped that woman? He would have to, right, if he was being consistent. He might not, but he ought to say that. Things could not have turned out differently. So why fight? Why fight? Similarly, on the other side, the pantheist says that everything is divine. So they look at a cancer or they look at a slum and they say, well, if you could see this from the divine point of view, somehow this too is all good. It's all part of the divine. It's all part of the oneness. Well, if all is God and all is good, again, why fight it? And that is the implication of pantheism. You say, well, this is sort of an idle speculation. Friend, it's not. This has consequence in the real world. In India, where pantheism has been dominant for not just centuries, but for millennia, what is also dominant culturally there? You probably know this. Some of you have visited. The caste system. And even to this day, if you are in a lower caste, you still cannot move up the ladder socially, economically. It's very, very difficult even after many social reforms which, has been, which have been inspired in, in part by Western Christian values of, of equality and human rights and all that jazz. Why not? Why can they still not rise out of your caste? Because if in a pantheistic system you were born an untouchable, the general opinion is that's just the fate of your karma, man. 
You, you, you deserve it. The universe put you there. So why fight it? I mean, and they don't. And they don't. I mean, the upper classes are the ones who could do something about it. And for the most part, they don't or they have not historically. Why fight the universe? Why fight for equality? Why fight for goodness? Now, I've taken the long way around, friend, to show you why Christianity is different. Because Christianity is a fighting religion. It fights because it believes there is an ultimate good that's worth fighting for. It fights because it believes that some of the things in the world are not what God wants and therefore should be fought against. And so here is C.S. Lewis. In Mere Christianity, he said, For Christianity is a fighting religion. <laughs> there it is. It thinks God made the world, that space and time and heat and cold and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly in us putting them right again. And that puts a fight on you. It puts a fight in front of you. He's right. Christianity is a fighting religion because it is the only worldview that faces the two core facts of reality that are staring you in the face. And they're staring in the face every morning when you get up, when you walk into the woods, and when you go to work in the morning. And what are the two core facts? The two core facts of reality are this. One, the world is far too complex and beautiful and full of goodness and design to be the result of indifferent chaos or luck or chance or evil. That's the first fact. And the second fact is the world is far too evil, too hard, too full of suffering and pain and death to be the result of good design or intelligence or love. So which is it? Is it chaos or is it design? If it's chaos, what explains the design? If it's design, what explains the chaos? The Darwinist tells you that the design is just an illusion. The Buddhist tells you that the chaos is just an illusion. And so it seems to me that Christianity is the only worldview that's looking at both the facts and dealing with them squarely. And that the other two cannot be true because they're only acknowledging half the facts. Oh, but you say, well, maybe there's another option that acknowledges all the facts. Maybe the world is run by two equal and competing powers. One of them's good and one of them's evil. There's a name for that view. That worldview is called dualism. And C.S. Lewis would say, next to Christianity, I think it's the man, quote, the manliest thing on the market, he says. <laughs> so what is dualism? Dualism says, okay, maybe the, the world is so full of death and disease and, and horror and abuse and suffering because there is a power driving that. But maybe then there's also an equal good power that explains all of the beautiful designs and the goodness and morality and the truth that we also experience in the world. That's dualism. And they're two equal and competing powers. But understand something, friend, that as soon as you categorize them this way, one's good and one's evil, you've entered a third thing into the picture, and that is your view, your judgment about what's good and what's bad. You call the bad power bad because it's actually bad, not just because it's different from the other power. You believe that it's wrong, that it's fundamentally mistaken. It's not yin and yang, right? Some of you got that little Buddha symbol somewhere. Maybe you tattooed it on your shoulder. It's not yin and yang where the good and the bad need each other. Now, let's not be foolish about this, friends. That's nonsense because good doesn't need bad. 
Think about that for two seconds. Good doesn't need bad, but bad needs good. Badness needs the good. You say, well, how does that make sense? Think about it. Why does a rapist rape? He doesn't do it for the sake of rape. The rapist rapes for the sake of pleasure, which is good. The rapist rapes for the sake of power, which is good. Right? So, as it turns out, badness is merely corrupted goodness. No one values greed and cruelty for their own sake. They don't cherish greed and cruelty. They are greedy and cruel because they cherish beauty, safety, freedom, control. And these are all good things as far as they go. So notice, good things are good in and of themselves. You can love truth and beauty and goodness for its own sake. Goodness is itself, C.S. Lewis says. Badness is merely spoiled goodness. So if the world's cruelty and death and human brokenness and sinfulness and evil is driven by a dark power, that power cannot be on an equal footing with the good power. That dark power, whatever it is, has to have intelligence and will and power to pervert And where does he get that from? From the good power. So the good power must be supreme. And so now you know why dualism can't work. They can't be equal powers. The good power must be supreme because goodness is itself. Badness is merely a corruption. Secondly, you also can see why Christianity has always taught that the devil was created by God. That's the the teaching of the church from the very beginning, that the devil was created by God by God. Here's C.S. Lewis again. And do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? That is not a mere story for the children, he says. It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers given to it by goodness. You know what he's referring to? He's referring to this wealth of teaching in the Bible about how this evil power came from God. That the evil power is actually the highest, greatest, and most beautiful thing that God ever made. That's been the assumption of Christians and Jews forever. In fact, we read this in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, where the prophet will say, You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. They were given to you on the day that you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground. Now, we'll talk about that a little more in extended. The context of this is a a prophecy against the king of Tyre, but I think it legitimately refers to the origins of that evil power we've been talking about. One of the things that will surprise you when you read the Bible, and you should read the Bible. It's really good. It's a great story. Bestseller. One of the things that will surprise you when you read the Bible is how often from the very first page to the last page, how consistent it is in acknowledging the existence of a dark power. And that uh, this is um, a power that is capable of affecting the world. 
And now maybe you'd say, well, maybe that was like how the, the, they thought about it way, way, way back. And then as the Bible goes, goes on, and then especially towards Jesus, that whole thinking diminishes down to almost nothing. It's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. You get hints and allusions to the dark power in Genesis chapter uh, 3. And it comes into a full-blown trumpet blast in the ministry of Jesus. A full-on assumption that death and disease and sin are driven by dark spiritual agency. You say, well, what is that like? Well, first of all, you can just take away, we'll talk about this more next week, you can take away the, you know, the, the red tights and the horns and the fork tail and the pitchfork and the whole thing. But friend, that's just a ridiculous thing. These are separated intelligences. They are intelligences. They are, they are personal. There's agency and will, and they are, their will is bent and corrupted, and they are evil. And that's what the Bible and Jesus specifically assumes. Do you? There is a version of Christianity that's as passive about good and evil as pantheism and atheism. It's a view of Christianity that says this. I don't like talking about that whole spiritual warfare thing. Ugh, angels, demons, weird as kooky, it's medieval. And so I'm just going to prefer to just believe in God. I mean, it's just, I'll, I'll pare down my belief, my, 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 my spiritual beliefs. Just, there's God, and this other stuff is uh, accoutrements, add-ons. I'll take it or leave it. And that kind of Christianity, friends, may seem more reasonable to you. It sort of says God is in heaven and everything is just fine. That is not how Jesus looked at the world. It's just not. I mean, if you want to align with the way he looked at the world, here's how Jesus saw things. He saw the world as if it was at war. He assumed that the dark power that we've been talking about was not co-equal with God, but it was a rebel from God, that Satan had fallen. These are the words of Jesus. And further, he believed that this world was bound in some way to this rebellious power and his minions. And that Jesus was set on a mission to free us and the world. Those two things are inextricably bound up. That he was here to free us and the world from the bondage of Satan. The bondage of this dark power that rebelled against God in the primordial past. That is how Jesus looked at the world. He shows up on day one. And what does he say? He says, repent. For the kingdom of God has arrived. Wait a minute. He shows up on planet Earth, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, God in human skin, God with us. But only then has the kingdom of God arrived? Whose kingdom was it before? Well, you know if you've read the Gospels. Read them, friends. It was Satan's kingdom, such that Satan would offer it to Jesus in temptation. I will give you the kingdoms. Jesus Rejected such temptation, but it shows unequivocally whose kingdom it was. That's how Jesus looked at the world. Enemy-occupied territory, to borrow C.S. Lewis's phrase. It's Satan's kingdom, and Jesus had come to steal it back. Now, doesn't that make some sense of things? That just makes the world make sense for me. Some of you look at the world. The fighting the wars, the devastation, the corruption, the heaving of the earth even. We're in the middle of this hurricane season, unprecedented, they're telling us, and you think, oh, it looks like a war zone. Friend, what if it looks like a war zone because it is a war zone? What if it looks like war because it is war? 
So AC3, Jesus is saying, the world is at war, and he's called you to, number one, defect, join his team. Number two, be sent on the redemption mission to steal it back. And that puts you on mission, Fred. And that puts a sword in your hand. And you're called to fight. It's amazing, friends, and it's epic. It's epic. Now, when did that fight begin? It began when we realized that Satan is the author of the war and pride was his declaration of war. And the pride is the thing he taught us. Here's how the Bible will describe it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Did God really say you can eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit. Or you, uh, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die. The serpent said, to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be, here's the word, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the fight begins when we realize, we join the fight when we realize we've been seduced. We've been lied to. There was a promise that played on our pride. The Bible is saying Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors the idea that we could be like God, which is to say what? Which is to say we could set up as if we created ourselves. So we'll just be our own masters. We'll invent our own rules. We'll be the ones who by, by creative fiat just make up a design specifications for the way we ought to live. And we'll just, in, so we become the gods of our own religion. And so we're our own masters and we'll find happiness apart from God, outside of God. Well, how did that go? How did that go since the moment of pride and our declaration of war when we joined the enemy like a bunch of Benedict Arnolds? Ah, what happened? How, where did it go from there? Well, out of that hopeless attempt to find happiness apart from God has come every misery we call human history. Poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, pornography, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of people trying to find something other than God to make them happy. Friends, the world is at war. And pride was our declaration of war. The mess begins with this impossible wish, right? To be happy apart from God. And the reason why it's an impossible wish, I will say, is because God made us. He invented us the way a man invents a car, and so he knows that a car is meant to run on fuel, and it will not run on anything else, and you were made to run on God. God is the fuel you were made to run on. Rather, maybe we could say in biblical language, he is the food for your soul, and your soul will not run healthfully on any other. And so there we are, desperately trying to, to find happiness on our own. Make no mistake, friends, God cannot give you happiness apart from himself. It's an impossible wish. It can't be done. It's not there. There is no such thing. It's like a plant wishing to thrive without water. To have that wish is to wish to die. And death is what follows, our declaration of war. And friends, this is what Satan has done to us. This is what Satan has done to us humans because we bought into his pride program. 
you can be like God. You can define good and evil. You can define your own meaning. You can define your own design specifications for your world. And Adam joined the darkness and we followed. We're Benedict Arnold's, every one of us. So what is the first thing to do when you hear something like this? Well, number one, reject pride. It was our declaration of war. So basically, it's your moment where you defect from your defection. You defect from your treachery and your traitorness against your creator, against the one who loves you and against the one who made you. You, you defect from the you-can-be-your-own-God thing and you come back to the Father. That's what repentance is, friends. That's the first thing you do when you hear something like this. The second thing is this, is to reject passivity and wake up. Wake up. How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? Most of you. This will make sense. You're in The Matrix. The world is The Matrix. And Jesus offers you the red pill. It's a phrase now in the culture, right? It's a meme. He got red-pilled. What does it mean when we say he got red-pilled? It means, whoa, he woke up. Like, he was oblivious, he was ignorant of truth, and then, boom, it's like it, it came on him in a moment that things were not as they seemed. Jesus would red pill you this morning. Take the red pill. And what comes with it is, yeah, like in the movie, some rough reality. Rough reality about you, about the nature of your pride, but also what comes with it is the liberation, the liberty that you come into the reality and you come into the world as it was meant to be lived. You weren't meant to be under the control of the agents of evil, used malevolently for their purpose. No, you were made to be liberated into your true self, to be under the beautiful followership of a God who loves you and made you and knows how you work best. And you say, well, no, man, I'm, uh, I'm not into this whole war thing. I mean, seriously, I'm indifferent to any kind of war. Listen, friends, that was also the case in the movie, right? So to keep the metaphor going, if you like, if you were passive in the matrix and indifferent, you were against the truth. And you were just going to stay plugged in. And you know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12? He said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Like there's no Switzerland here. If you're not for me, you're against me. There's no middle ground. If you're not on my side, you're making things worse. And I'll say, I, you know what? I'm content to sleep through this one, Rick. I mean, this whole red pill thing. No way. I'm fine. I'm, my life is good. Got a nice house and a couple cars, a couple kids. It's all good. Listen, you're content to sleep this battle out. You are against the re resistance that Jesus began. You are not seeing the world the way Jesus saw it. If you're content to just sleepwalk your way through this thing, you are against your own liberation. If you're content to sleepwalk your way through this war, friends, you are against the liberation of your friends. You're against their freedom. You're against them coming into life. That's what you're against. And so if you're not working, warring, fighting with Jesus, you're making things worse. So I say, wake up and take the red pill and God will yank you out of the matrix. <laughs> And if you've seen the movie, you remember the moment when Keanu Reeves goes, Whoa, and he says, this is the world? There's so much I never knew. And there was so much I was numb to. And there's so many ways in which I was deceived. 
I was deceived. I was literally under the power, a spell. And Jesus would wake you up and bring you into life. The Bible says he came to destroy the works of the devil and destroy the fear of death that hangs as a pall over humanity as we walk our way through this life just wondering about what comes next after the grave. Food for the worms. Jesus would call you into a kind of new life that brings you a hope that convinces you that he is taking back what's his. And that means your soul. And that means the rough world that you and I live in. It's all getting redeemed as we surrender to the work of Master Jesus. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. So if you're ready to defect, you're going to get pulled out of the matrix. Then gear up because you're going back in. You're on a mission. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would shake who needs to be shaken here this morning and that you would wake up the sleeping, that they would rise from the dead and then in repentance they would come into a kind of life and realize what you're doing in this world. And what you're doing is a redemption plan that includes everything. It includes the souls of precious humans, but it includes this whole great broken world which is under a false dominion right now. And God, we want to then join you in your work. And we're not going to just decry the darkness. Now, in this moment of repentance, we commit to join you and to be used by you in your work, in your great liberation. Behold, all things will become new. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.